Welcome to another episode of the Criminal Discourse Podcast. I'm Wendy. And I'm Trish. And today we're going to cover the Brighton Axe murder case. It's a cold case, but also a very recent judgment. We'll get into that in a moment, but we have an update on a case that is very near and dear to our hearts. Trish, can you provide us with that? Yes, the Sophia Tuscon Duplantier case. Yeah. Near and dear. Near and dear. Trish, it- I think, has a subscription now to the Irish Times. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so just an update on this case. As you know, they are reinvestigating her murder, and it seems like there are two investigations going on simultaneously. One is by the Garda, local Garda in West Cork. The other is by the Serious Crimes Review Unit in the Garda. So both of them are going on. But what they're looking at is they are trying to track down anyone that Sophie knew and when she was in West Cork and who she liked and maybe who she disliked when she was there because they feel that her killer is someone she knew. Now, Ian Bailey has denied ever knowing her. I think he says in the one documentary... I knew of her, I saw her from afar, but I never talked to her. But Sophie's neighbor, Alfie Lyons, if you remember, says that, hey, I introduced them one day when Ian Bailey was over doing gardening work at my house. Now, Alfie Lyons has since unfortunately passed away, but these are statements he made right after Sophie's murder. So the investigation goes on. This could take months till they wrap it up and give their findings So we'll just have to wait and see. But that is the latest. They also feel that there are locals in the area that know something. But for whatever reason, they're not willing to come forward. So hopefully they will. I just can't believe how this case continues to unravel. New things keep popping up. Well, it's nice that they're reinvestigating it and just not letting it lie. So hopefully they'll have a conclusion for the family. Well, if you have any updates, case suggestions, feedback, comments, want to let us know who you are, where you're listening from, you can reach out to us on our website, criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. Google us, find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and whatever app you listen to your podcast on. We're probably on there as well. Leave us a review, five stars. We like that. Some feedback. We'd appreciate it. We love it. Let's get into this Brighton Axe murder case, Trish. Okay. So on November 7, 2022, not that long ago, James Krausnick Jr. was sentenced to 25 years to life for the second-degree murder of his wife, Kathleen Krausnick, back in 1982. James and Kathleen's only child, a daughter named Sarah, was just three years old and home with her mother when she was axed to death. Sarah has always defended her father's innocence, and in 2012, convicted rapist Ed Larrabee confessed to Kathleen's murder, but it didn't hold up. So with James's conviction, one half of this family believes that justice was delivered, albeit 40 years late, while the other half is now suffering a second loss. This is the Brighton Axe murder case. 
And it begins in Mount Clemens, Michigan, where James Krausnick and his future wife, Kathleen Schlosser, were born and raised. Mount Clemens itself is a quaint town in the United States Midwestern region, about a half an hour's drive northeast of Detroit. Its colorful history included international fame for their mineral waters and bathing houses in the late 1800s. That was very popular back then, like healing properties of the water. In a nod to this, Mount Clemens student athletes are referred to as the battling bathers. I don't know how tough that is, but (laughs) we're playing against the bathers today. (laughs) Yes. James and Kathy grew up in Mount Clemens during its population peak of about 20,000 middle class and mostly white residents. Kathy's family, the Schlossers, they still operate a family farm in the area. And in 1949, James's father and uncle took ownership of their family's local business, Krausnick's Carpet and Drapery. That still operates as a Carpet One store today. Both James and Kathy attended Mount Clemens High School, fellow battling bathers, and while it appears that they worked together in Booster Club, they were just friends at the time. So James graduated in 1969. He was on the school's swim and golf teams, the student council, and was a student teacher. And Kathy graduated a year later in 1970 and was active with peer-to-peer groups and art clubs. After graduation, James Krosnick and Kathy Schlosser enrolled at the same school, Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo, and that's when they began dating. They married in 1974, which is the same year that Kathy graduated, and they had their first and only child, Sarah, the one we mentioned at the top, in 1977. At some point in the late 1970s, the young family relocated from Michigan over to Lynchburg, Virginia, which is sort of Washington, D.C. area, where James had landed a job as an assistant economics professor at Lynchburg College. So they were kind of on the up and up. Yeah. The Krausnicks' next move was in September 1981 when they purchased a home in the Evans Farm neighborhood of Brighton, New York, a suburb of Rochester. So this is the western part of New York State. It borders the southern shore of Lake Ontario. There were a lot more people here than in Michigan, and the neighborhood was a lot more upscale. It was a wonderful place for an ambitious couple like the Krausnicks to raise a family with beautiful colonial-style homes like the one they bought, tree-lined streets, and many other young families with children. Is it under snow right now? (laughs) They did just get a heck of a lot of snow. Not quite as much as the part of New York that borders Lake Erie, but yes, they just got dumped on. The move came about when James got an executive position as an economist at the Eastman Kodak Company in Rochester. So Kodak Film. But there are rumors that James was forced to change jobs after Lynchburg College discovered that he never completed his doctorate degree and was fraudulently accrediting himself as a PhD. This is a very big deal. Yes. The fact that he lied about his credentials, that's true. But whether Lynchburg College knew if it was the reason for this job change and when exactly his wife Kathy found out, that we don't know for certain. They were very private. Kathy's family believes that she was angry with James and confronted him about his lie once she discovered it. And what we do know for certain is that this would be Kathy Krausnick's last move. She would be murdered in this Brighton, New York home at 33 Del Rio Drive just five months after they moved in. On Friday, February 19, 1982, it was by all means an average day. Temperatures were right around the freezing mark, typical for Western New York in late winter, as we know by all the snow they just got. According to 30-year-old James Krausnick, he left for work at his usual time of 6.30 a.m. while his wife and daughter were still asleep. 
He reported to his job at Eastman Kodak Company in Rochester, where he had an early morning meeting. Do we know how long his commute was from home to Rochester? I don't know that, but you could probably Google it. I don't think it's that long. I think it's about ten, a 10 minute drive okay. between Brighton and Rochester. James's assistant at Eastman Kodak would later say that it was different on the 19th. He was usually pretty calm and cool, but on the 19th, he wasn't. Instead, she said that James was in a hurry and rushed that day. Eastman Kodak had recently discovered James's fraudulent academic credentials, although it's not clear whether his job was at risk. I have to believe it was. So his false credentials had to do with his PhD. He had his undergraduate. He had most likely a master's, Mm -hmm. but he didn't get or did not complete the PhD portion of his degree. Correct. But he was claiming that he was Dr. Krauss Nick. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You can't do that. You cannot. When James returned home at his normal time, just before 5 p.m., he says he immediately noticed something was wrong. A window and interior door leading from their garage into their home had been broken into, and his wife's purse and their silver tea set were out on the floor downstairs. When he went upstairs, he found Kathy, his 29-year-old wife, lying in bed under the covers with a long-handled axe protruding from her head. James searched for their three-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Sarah, and found her in her bedroom, fortunately unharmed. James took Sarah to a neighbor's home to call police. The neighbor recalls James being extremely upset and almost incapable of speaking, and that's why she made the phone call for him. When she asked James what was wrong, quote, he had a guttural sound. He looked horrified. Responding officers recall James, quote, making emotional sounds, screaming, growling, that kind of thing. He didn't say anything, just screams and growls. Sarah had been home alone the entire day with her mother's body. She told police that a bad man had entered the home in the early morning hours, but she didn't seem to know that her mother was dead or that it was her body in the bed. James would prevent investigators from speaking with Sarah again for several months, and he never followed up on having her seen by a child psychologist. Do they know if she saw her mother's body? I mean, he found her in her room unharmed, but she was there all day. I don't know if she was able to get out of the door and get over to her mother's room. Yes. So the bedroom, Kathy's bedroom door was open. She saw her mother, but she didn't know that it was her mom is what she said. And there was no indication that she had gone to the person lying in the bed. Correct. She didn't enter the room is what she said. I find that all of that hard to believe, honestly, that she didn't go in, that she didn't know it was her mom. Even for a three-year-old, you see someone in your mom's bed, you know your mom's supposed to be home alone with you. Well, you're going to be hungry. I know my kid tracks me down for snacks several times a day. And I don't know, too, a three-year-old if she might still have bathroom needs. Well, yeah. So when responding officers entered the crime scene, they instantly sensed that they were looking at a stage burglary. The two-foot mall or wood splitter that had been used to break into the home, it came from the garage. And so did the axe that was used to kill Kathy Krausnick. So possibly they had been left outside, but mm. it was odd that items were disturbed downstairs, but there were absolutely no signs of ransacking upstairs where Kathy was found, and nothing was actually stolen from the home. In fact, there was jewelry and $43 in plain sight in Kathy's bedroom, untouched. It didn't make sense that Kathy had interrupted an attempted robbery if she was still lying in bed under a comforter and electric blanket as if she was still asleep when she was killed. She was fully clothed and there were no signs of sexual assault. So what was the motive? 
So she was still in her pajamas. Yep, still in pajamas. And he left at 6.30 a.m., according to him. Mm -hmm. Nobody had been in the house at that point. Investigators collected over 100 pieces of physical evidence from that crime scene, but they didn't find any clues that pointed to a perpetrator outside of the home. The handle of the axe used to kill Kathy had been wiped clean of any fingerprints. And the original medical examiner, she initially came up with a time of death anywhere between 1.55 a.m. and 8.55 a.m., a huge window of time. But an official time of death was never listed in Kathy's autopsy report. They couldn't pin it down with accuracy. But experts believed that Kathy's murder could reasonably have occurred after James left for work. And one neighbor did tell police that they saw a jogger with a ski mask in the area at 7.25 a.m. That, to me, isn't the most unusual thing. If you're jogging in sub-freezing temperatures, you're going to wear something to cover your face. But it's odd. Well, I would question, have you ever seen that jogger before Right in the area? Is this someone whose normal routine is to jog around that time? Right. Especially if you live in a development, you get to know your neighbor's routines. You know the habits, yeah. Yeah. Although most friends and neighbors describe the Krausnicks as a loving couple and James as a good husband and father, a few did report frequent arguments, incidents of domestic violence, and they described James as arrogant and mean. Police had found a pamphlet for a local marriage counselor after they searched the couple's vehicle. Kathy's younger sister, Annette Schlosser, she thinks James killed her sister after they argued over James's incomplete PhD credentials. She believes Eastman Kodak Company learned of his fraud around the time of Kathy's murder and that he was at risk of losing his job and their new home. Police conducted an initial interview with James, but they had a hard time following up. First, James and his daughter got a hotel room and let police know where to find him. But when they showed up on February 20th, the day after Kathy was discovered, James had already left for his hometown of Mount Clemens, Michigan with his daughter. He didn't notify police, but officers had to find out from the hotel's front desk clerk that he had left. Oopsie. (laughs) They were able to get a key and search the hotel room before it was cleaned, but they reported that it didn't look like it had been used at all. The towels were dry and looked untouched, and the beds looked freshly made. So are they thinking he just got this hotel room, but really just kind of turned around and left, didn't even stay? Yes, that it was almost a ruse that he was staying there. In March, so the month after, not even a month after, a few weeks after, officers made a trip to Mount Clemens, Michigan. They said James began yelling when investigators mentioned that they suspected the burglary had been staged, and they referred to his reaction as consciousness of guilt. And before officers left, James told them, quote, please don't give up on my case. I need to find out who did this. In the time that he had left with his daughter to go back, to Michigan. Does it say he followed up with him? I mean, he didn't tell me he was leaving, but here he's saying, oh, please don't give up on this. I want to find out. But in the weeks after the murder, how often did he call the authorities to say, where are you at? What have you found? Never. He did not communicate with officers after he left. He didn't even tell them that that's where he went. He, they had to discover this through their investigation where he was. And then instead of cooperating after that comment, James' next move after police found him in Mount Clemens and interviewed him was to retain a lawyer. And then after that, neither he, his daughter Sarah, nor anyone else in the Krausnick family granted another interview until the case was reopened decades later. They shut down. One investigator said that James, quote, gave the appearance of wanting to be cooperative, but then he got a lawyer and we never talked to him again. 
Multiple people provided false confessions to Kathy Krausnick's murder over the years, but her husband remained the prime suspect, and it went cold. One of those false confessions came from a convicted rapist named Ed Larrabee. As Ed was approaching death in a prison hospital due to incurable disease in 2012, he provided a written confession to Kathy Krausnick's murder. He was already serving two life sentences for sex crimes against teenagers and the attempted murder of a police officer. That'll get you a life sentence. That'll get you two. In the latter case, he attempted to strangle the officer with a nurse's call cord when he was being hospitalized for his ongoing health issues. Ed Larrabee did live one half mile from the Krausnick's Brighton, New York home when Kathy was murdered, but he got major details about the crime wrong. For example, he said he murdered Kathy in the summer of 1981, when it actually occurred in February of 82. They didn't even live there that summer. He also said he raped Kathy before killing her, but she had no signs of sexual assault. And it's also important to note that the nature of Ed's known offenses, they don't align with Kathy Krausnick's attack at all. Brighton police did attempt to investigate Ed Larrabee in 1982, but that file is sealed and it's unclear how successful they actually were. We do know from an officer who surveilled him in connection with a series of Rochester rapes in the early 80s that apprehending Ed Larrabee was, quote, much easier said than done. Mr. Larrabee did not talk to the police. He would most likely invoke his right to a lawyer and remain silent. Kind of sounds like James as well. <laughs> Ed Larrabee's confession, it was dismissed, but another one he made shortly thereafter was taken more seriously. Says so just a little side note. Ed told police that he was responsible for the death of Stephanie Kopchinski in the Martha's Vineyard region of upstate New York. Stephanie was a music teacher who went missing on July 31st, 1991, when she was just 27 years old. Her remains were discovered seven years later in 1998, but the cause of her homicide would remain unsolved until Ed's confession. So he did have at least one confession that appears to be viable. He was using these confessions, though, as a bargaining tool to negotiate with officials so that he could be hospitalized and die outside of prison. And with the answers he provided in Stephanie's case, he was granted a burial outside prison grounds. Ed died in prison in 2014, and he hasn't been connected to any other homicides. So he must have given enough details with that confession that it matched the crime scene. Yes, mm. but not with the Krausnicks. <sighs> no. <laughs> In 2015, Monroe County Police and the FBI created a new cold case work group, and the Brighton Axe murder in Monroe County's jurisdiction was one of the first cases investigators wanted to reactivate. They began by digitizing the case file documents, stretching all the way back to 1982, making them searchable and indexable, and that was a huge step forward in digesting an unsolved case more than three decades old. Their next step was taking the more than 100 pieces of physical evidence that they collected from the crime scene and retesting them, this time for DNA rather than fingerprints. So they had never DNA tested anything from the crime scene before this. At this time, was there touch DNA available? Oh, I would think so. Yes. In 2015, 16. So they actually took all of this evidence down to the FBI headquarters in Quantico, Virginia and did this. Very hardcore. The only DNA found was James Krausnick's. 
On one hand, that makes sense, considering that James lived in the home with Kathy. But on the other hand, it was significant that of all the numerous items connected to the crime scene, there was no other DNA present besides Kathy and James Krausnick's, especially when you consider that in 1982, criminals were not thinking about leaving DNA evidence the way that they do today. So the physical evidence all but rules out the intruder theory. So didn't they say down near the door was her purse and tea set? One would think there would be something on those items, though the intruder could have wore gloves. I mean, even back then, you're probably still wearing gloves. Mm -hmm. But James's DNA was everywhere. With this new evidence, police tracked James down again to re-interview him in 2016. They found him out in Gig Harbor, Washington, in another executive position. Now he was the vice president of sales for the Weyerhaeuser Company, one of the world's largest private Timberland owners. He was living in a 3,300 square foot home at a golf and country club. And two days after police interviewed him, he put that home up for sale and relocated to Arizona. He left his job? Yeah, he left his job and put his house up for sale because the police interviewed him. Not suspicious at all. I'm just, I'm like, did he get his PhD yet? I, it does not say that he ever went back and got his PhD. I think he either continued to lie about it or just with that resume was able to keep going. The most critical new evidence beyond the DNA was a fresh look at Kathy Krausnick's time of death. The FBI and Monroe County PD called in New York City's chief medical examiner, Dr. Michael Bodden. Now, I didn't know who he was, but apparently he's a big deal. If you Google him, you will find that he has investigated the John F. Kennedy assassination. He's worked on the O.J. Simpson trial, MLK Jr., a lot of things. The government trusts him. Dr. Bodden applied a more precise time of death analysis that went beyond a simple estimation based solely on Kathy's body temperature. He analyzed the digestive state of her stomach contents, the stage of her rigor mortis, and a different rate of body cooling than what they had used back in 1982. And this time he accounted for the fact that she was fully clothed under a comforter and the electric blanket all day. So the electric blanket was in the off position, but still, that's going to have a different It's another layer. Mm -hmm. She's not out like she was just laying on top of the covers. Not exposed. As a result of Dr. Bodden's work, investigators now had a new window of time for Kathy Krausnick's time of death, and it had to have happened before her husband left for work at 6.30 a.m. Do they give the time of death what his new time of death was window? It's still all over the place. They say things from between 9.30 p.m. to like 3 or 4 in the morning, maybe to 1.55 a.m. They still have all these crazy ranges of time. But they're still saying by 6.30, she was deceased. For sure, without a doubt. So that's the key here with Dr. Bodden versus the old estimates is he says she died before James left for work. So he either saw her with an axe in her head or he put it there. In May 2019, as a result of the cold case unit's findings, Monroe County's district attorney presented the case against James Krausnick to a grand jury. They returned with an indictment, and James Krausnick was charged with second-degree murder on November 8, 2019. He made the $100,000 bail with all his executive positions, and after forfeiting his passport, he was allowed to return to his Peoria, Arizona home with his fourth wife, Sharon. Now, I will say there is no record of him abusing his other wives or killing them, just 
Kathy. He just divorced him. (laughs) But still, fourth wife is not usually a great sign when you're also tied to a homicide investigation. His original trial date was set for June 2nd, 2020. But of course, that was delayed due to COVID. So in December 2021, the courts denied James's motion to dismiss his indictment. He argued what's called a singer motion, meaning he believed that the prosecution denied his constitutional rights by delaying their charges in order to gain a tactical advantage. So first, he claimed that there was no new evidence to restart the investigation and that no new evidence was collected, rather that he was just being charged solely on old evidence that hadn't been sufficient enough to charge him back in 1982. But of course, there was new evidence. There was the DNA testing, which had never been done, and a new time of death from Dr. Bodden. And the cold case unit's formation wasn't solely for the purpose of investigating Kathy Krausnick's death. Second, James argued that several witnesses who would have testified on his behalf had passed away, and that live testimony is more compelling to a jury than documentation and written record. He noted specifically co-workers at Eastman Kodak Company, and these would be his executive peers, who said his behavior at work the day his wife was murdered was not unusual. Of course, we have someone who's not his peer, his assistant, who said it was. He especially emphasized the missing testimony of the deceased original medical examiner who would be able to explain her reasoning for the original time of death that doesn't necessarily contradict with James's alibi. However, it's not clear how any of those individuals would testify today. I would argue, too, the medical examiner might change her opinion with modern technology and understanding. Yeah, if they're using a new time frame that wasn't available back then or not part of their procedures, yeah, she she possibly could have. And then the fact that they weren't available to testify meant that their evidence wasn't going to be subject to cross-examination. So it was still going to be entered into evidence and seen by the jury, but not cross-examined. So that's actually to James's advantage. So they denied James's motion to dismiss the indictment. And then during the actual trial, James's attorneys argued that Ed Larrabee was Kathy's killer, not James, because of his confession, which we know does not hold up. James's daughter, Sarah, now in her 40s, testified on her father's behalf, but it took less than 10 hours for the jury to deliver their unanimous guilty verdict. One of the jurors who was a teenager in 1982 said it was the staged burglary aspect and lack of evidence of an intruder that swayed him. Quote, if you look at it, even the items in the bag were standing up. You had his footprint on the bag, meaning James. The items on the floor were perfectly standing up. Nothing was knocked over. It was just so staged. There really was no evidence to show that anyone outside of him could have committed this murder. That really did it for me. On November 7, 2022, more than 40 years after he lodged an axe in his wife's head and left his three-year-old daughter home alone for 10 and a half hours with her body, James Krausnick was sentenced to 25 years to life. Kathy's mother passed away before the trial began, but her 95-year-old father, Robert Schlosser, attended court proceedings from start to finish. After sentencing, he gave reporters a message for his former son-in-law, Jim, I hope you live to 100 years old and enjoy your new home. Ouch. Burn. (laughs) Meanwhile, James's daughter, Sarah, she was devastated by the verdict, saying her father was, quote, convicted of a crime he did not commit. It was even difficult for the jury, who saw the Krausnicks and Schlossers in court every day, knowing they were once a connected, loving family who were now hoping for completely opposite outcomes, brought together once again by this horrible family tragedy. 
We just tried to prepare ourselves in terms of what the reaction was going to be because there were really no winners in this situation, one juror recalled. The Krausnick and Schlosser families have been divided since Kathy's murder in 1982. Annette Schlosser, Kathy's younger sister, she was about 19 at the time of the murder. She says, when James moved out of state, he took Sarah away from us and wouldn't let us talk to her or see her or communicate with them. The Schlossers still love Sarah and understand that the verdict is another tremendous loss for her. She's lost both parents. Robert Schlosser, Kathy's father, and Sarah's grandfather says, I don't blame her. That's her father. Maybe after all of this is over, it'll be different. We'll see. So as a side note, it's kind of interesting that Kathy Krausnick's murder wasn't the only tragedy to befall the Brighton, New York home at 33 Del Rio Drive. It kind of has this Amityville house reputation in the Brighton neighborhood that it's in. In 1977, husband and wife Anthony and Estelle Shafino died of accidental carbon monoxide poisoning while they were living in the home. So this is just four years before Kathy. Anthony was well known in the area as the founder of Rochester Radio Supply, Inc., and he was a former owner of the local Avon Inn. After a night of bowling, the couple unintentionally left their car running in the garage, leading to their death. Really? <laughs> I'm just thinking back to the cars I grew up with. Nin- uh-huh. 1977, yes. you know, they're old models, you know, they don't give you those warning lights or anything. But they're, they're loud. fairly loud. They're very loud. It's an attached garage. Yeah. I feel like I would hear that. I think I would too, especially if you're putting the garage door down. That they're Yeah. I mean, I don't know what kind of car they had, but it either was a really soft running motor or were they drinking and they just were like, oh, let's go to bed and, you know. Or were they really elderly? I don't I don't know. I couldn't find very much information about this. I could only find tidbits about this in connection with stories about the Krausnicks. I would like to know more about that because that didn't. Because usually, I mean, they didn't have warning lights back then, like when you got out of the car, like you opened your door and it would be like, ding, ding, ding. And like, oh, oh, what's going on? Yeah. Wow. I'm just, I mean, I get the carbon monoxide because I'm like, oh, that's why you have to have those protectors. And But you're saying they left the car on in the enclosed attached garage. Mm-hmm. Maybe one of them went back out to get something. The other one thought they turned it off. Just a horrible, horrible tragedy. Well, maybe back then they didn't. Well, I'm thinking headlights. Would they turn off when you turned off the car? And if you didn't turn off the car, your headlights would still be on. I don't know. Maybe this is another case. (laughs) I think we just stumbled on another one. At any rate, the colonial style home built in 1945 was updated in 2017. It boasts clean modern designs along with three bedrooms, two and a half baths and a two car garage. It is really cute. I have the Zillow link in the show notes. It was just sold in 2021 for $230,000 and it typically goes for a little under market value due to its reputation. Well, three people died there. Three people died there. Horrifically. Kathy Krosnick's story also inspired a 2016 novel by Elizabeth Brundage called All Things Cease to Appear. I haven't read it, but it's got great reviews. I do think that it hinges on James being innocent, though. So that novel inspired a 2021 Netflix horror movie called Things Heard and Seen. Also have not watched that. Can't tell you if it's any good, but it stars Amanda Seyfried, who love that girl. She's from Allentown area as well as the character portraying Kathy. And then James Norton portrays the James Krausnick character. But this is this is even further astray from the case. There's like ghosts involved and all kinds of strange things. So I don't know. 
but it's out there if you want to take a deeper dive. We also have a lot of articles and some news video from the trial coverage that went on. We have the original February 1982 New York Times article about the discovery of Kathy Krausnick. And if you're interested in diving a little bit deeper into Ed Larrabee's crimes and that Stephanie Kopchinsky case, there are some links in the show notes, including a book that one of the Rochester police officers wrote about some major crimes in the area in the early 1980s. So as always, if you want to take a deeper dive, check out out our website, go there. (laughs) It's all there. It's all there. We'll keep you updated. If anything else happens, it seems like he's just going to I would imagine he's appealing. Yeah, he's going to appeal. I don't think he's going to win. And he's just he's 67 now. So it's that's pretty much where he's going to end up. I'd like to see though for Sarah to reconcile with her mom's family. I'd like to see that happen. That's really sad. It is. There you go. The Brighton Axe murder case. I hadn't heard of it. Now I have. It's a good one. <laughs> All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for listening today. We greatly appreciate it. We do pre-record. So I know this episode is coming out in, I believe, on December 5th. So I know you're all getting ready for the holiday season. Hopefully you successfully made it through Thanksgiving here in the United States, moving on towards our Christmas time. We all just want to thank you for taking the time to listen, whether you're wrapping gifts and listening to us or shopping, heading to the... Do people go out shopping? I guess they do. I do Amazon. Listen, put in your earbuds and do your internet shopping. What better activity than listening to your true crime podcast, catching up, listening to old episodes. Filling up your Amazon or Walmart card or Best Buy or Target or any of those. And when you're done rating that thing you just purchased, rate that podcast you just listened to. We would appreciate it. Yes. And subscribe and tell a friend Mm -hmm. about our podcast. We are pretty much word of mouth at this point, but we appreciate it. The gift of podcast referrals. There you go. That's all we want on our Christmas (laughs) list this year. So again, thank you. You heard Wendy at the beginning of the episode listening to all those ways you can reach out to us. And again, check out our website, criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. There you will find all of the show notes and all of the links and resources, especially with this case. You do a good job linking. Probably, I thought I had a lot of resources, but you outdo me. I, listen, I try to show off, you know. You do it well. <laughs> you do it well. All right, everybody. As always, if you see something, say something. You might have that missing piece of the puzzle it takes to solve a crime. Like, not that the coworker or the secretary, I don't know if her information was used in the new trial, but this just noting that her boss seemed really frazzled that morning of Kathy's murder. That just added a piece to the puzzle, per se, when it's usually very calm to me. And also, don't lie about your PhD. Don't. (laughs) Don't do that. All right. As always, we want you to stay safe out there. But you know, we also, especially around this time of year, we need to be a little kinder to one another. So until next time, guys. Bye. Bye.